welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hi, I'm Matt. Welcome back. What a glorious day. What a beautiful day. It's so, it's so good. It's so good to... Um, to see the beautiful blue sky, and I'm so grateful that you didn't go to Mount Ruapehu today. It's good to see you here. Thanks for coming. Uh, We're going to pick up on a series that I started a couple of months ago called The Parable of the Listeners, and it's a series because I'm just dotting it through the year when there is occasion, and even though I started two months ago, we're up to uh, part two today of The Parable of the Listeners. And back in June, we looked at this very famous parable, but of course, it's under another name in your Bible. It's the parable of the sower. And if you were here back then, you'll remember that I I call it the parable of the listeners because it mentions sowing twice, but it mentions listening about nine times. So I put forward the idea that it's more about listening than it is about sowing, but it is about sowing. In fact, there's a whole lot in there, and I'm delighted to be coming back to it. And it's in Luke chapter 8, if you want to follow along with your Bible or your device. Luke chapter 8 is the version that we're, uh, we're talking to today. I really like parables because they're teaching tools that draw on well-known situations and familiar ideas. But they're not simple and shallow, even though they're generally very short stories. They often carry lots of hidden meaning that's buried just below the surface. And the idea is, I believe, that you can get the gist of it from a reading of the short story. But for those who are really keen, a little bit of digging reveals a whole lot of great encouragement and powerful truth, which is why I think I could be on this series for a while. I don't know. I've got at least three messages lined up out of this, this short parable of just a few verses. So the original parable that we spoke to uh, a couple of months ago goes from verses 4 through to 21. We're not going to look at all those today. We're just going to pick on a few uh, at the beginning and in the middle. But in June, just to very briefly reflect back on that, in June we looked at the whole parable. I said it was more about listening and hearing, and that was the central message of the text And I said these things like this, we need ears to hear, that is to choose to focus on the listening event. We need to pursue a good and noble heart, which is about being ruthlessly honest with ourselves and with God. I said we need to consider how we listen so that the way to be close to Jesus, as close to Jesus as a mother or a sibling is to obey what he says. That was the how. So if you want to go back to that, if you like today and you want to go back and get part one after part two, it's on the podcast. Um, I encourage podcast listening. It's very encouraging. But today, we're going to see how this amazing parable, this little story reveals the big picture of what God is doing with all people on earth for all time. That's a pretty big headline, isn't it? What is God doing with all people on earth for all time? Well, I think it's 
lightly hidden in this parable. So that's where we're going today. And we're going to look at God's goal, God's purpose, God's, uh, our struggle, and God's strategy. It sounds like a business plan, but it's not a business plan. I contend that the best business plans come out of good biblical principles. And good uh, business writers will often be reflecting on biblical principles. So that's what we're, where we're going today. So we're going to read, uh, and read with me if you like, uh, in your head, um, Luke chapter 8. I, I haven't got this whole bit up on the screen, but we're just going to read a few verses from 4 to 8 to let the Word of God speak for itself to start with, and then we'll, we'll wander through there. Uh, Luke 8 verse 4. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell upon the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seeds fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. First thing about this section is that the parable reveals God's goal. The parable reveals God's goal a great crowd. God is pursuing a great crowd. I love this. The very first parable, it's the first parable that Jesus told, and I absolutely love the fact that in the first line, introducing the first parable, there is a vision of the end goal of the age. Knowing God's goal is key to being involved with him and with what he's doing. So let's have a look at that, that very first uh, line in verse 4. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town, and so of course I've underlined those two phrases. Before he even gets into the parable itself, Luke sets the scene for the story by linking it to the end of the age. I'm not making this up. He uses the identical phrase and words that would later be used in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, and in other places to describe John's vision of the worship, worshipping mass of people at the end of this age, at the beginning of heaven's eternity. Let's have a look at that text. After this, I looked and behold. When the Bible says behold... I never use the word behold in my day-to-day -day language. You might, but that's cool. You can use the word or the term if it feels smoother and it's more understandable. Check this out. That is absolutely what it means. After this, I looked and check this out. A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God's unstoppable plan to be worshipped and praised and revered by all peoples from every tribe and language, 
every ethnic people group. And this gathering of people in the parable story is, is uh, people coming to hear Jesus' teaching is deliberately described as a foretaste of that uncountable gathering with that very term, a great multitude. It's exactly the same phrase. It's exactly the same word, a great multitude. And it's not used by mistake. God's unstoppable plan is to have people worshipping and adoring and praising and following and obeying him from every ethnic people group, from every language, from every tribe. And not only does the, do the gospel writers use the term great multitude in this parable, they use another term to emphasize the diversity of that crowd. Now, that's first century diversity, um, more so than we might think of 21st century diversity, but diversity nonetheless. It uses that term town after town. Now, we might think, well, that's just, that's just three words and it just rolls, but it was a, a known phrase in Greek in the first century, and it, had, it carried meaning that people knew. And as soon as Jesus used that phrase, town after town, people knew exactly what he was talking about. It was a little bit more, it, it talks about enormous variety, everybody there could be. So in, in New Zealand, in, in English, we might say, um, and every man and his dog was there. That would, we would know what we mean, wouldn't we, if someone said that? Or every uh, Tom, Dick, and Harriet, or whatever phrase in our idiom is popular at the moment, to say there is a great variety of listeners gathering to hear Jesus. Men and women. No big deal today, but something of a deal in the first century. Uh, Jews and Greeks. No big deal today, but sometimes a deal in the first century. Young and old, rich and poor. No big deal today, but something of a deal in the first century. A huge variety of people were gathering, and the gospel writers make a point of pointing it out, that the word of God must be spread among all peoples. All the gospel writers keep this intro. So I think that means it's really important. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all imply by the use of these particular phrases that the parable presents God's goal of being revered and worshipped by every single ethnic group on earth. You might have noticed that I'm using the term peoples. People with an S. It's not very common in usage for us in our day-to-day language. But until 1974, the church generally thought and taught that all people in the Bible meant all countries. This is relatively new language. And it was a huge blind spot for the church. It meant that in the late part of last century, the church around the world was celebrating that there was church and Christianity in every country. And that is wonderful, but it's nowhere near the end of the task that God has set us and the goal that he's put before us of worldwide evangelization. It's what God's about. And this blind spot 
was partly due to the fact that the King James Bible translated peoples, which is a completely legitimate Hebrew word for the Old Testament and Greek word for the New Testament, but the King James, which was the go-to version for decades for many, many people, translated it as nations or Gentiles. So do you see what that would do? If you read nations all through the Old Testament, but what it meant was ethnic, ethno-linguistic people groups, it would change the way you see what God is doing. And so back in 1974, a guy called Ralph Winter, who was a respected Christian missions thinker, a missiologist of the 20th century, he revolutionized uh, Christian missions and Christian thinking by digging down into the meaning of nation and nations and peoples to reveal the idea of ethnicity. And by this stage, more new English translations were using the term peoples. And so the idea is that peoples are groups of people who share a language and a culture. They're not necessarily bounded by political boundaries, but they might. So it became evident that a nation, singular, like China, actually has over 500 ethno-linguistic people groups within her borders. 500 different peoples. So each of those peoples, each of those people groups, have a distinct language. It might be related to another language, but it's a bit unique. And they have distinct cultural practices. And so they're in need of a distinct and special approach. God's goal is that all peoples everywhere have opportunity to meet Jesus. And so before that event, that, that was actually a Lausanne conference that Dr. Billy Graham had convened in 1974, before that it was very common for Christians to talk about the mission field. But nowadays we talk much more freely and much more um, uh, insightfully about ethnicity and people group. And the point, God's goal, whether it's from Hamilton or from the, the Uyghur people in northwest China and to all the nations of the earth, is that people everywhere have opportunity to receive the seed of God's word, to hear his beautiful promises, and to be included in that incredible worshiping mass of people, that uncountable gathering at the end of the age. That's God's goal. All that revealed in five words in the introductory sentence to the parable. Don't you love the word of God? They get shorter, by the way, the points. It's cool. <laughs> Number two, the parable reveals God's purpose. So that's goal. People from every group around the earth gathered and worshiping. God, this parable reveals God's purpose, growth and maturity of his people. In verses 8 and 15 of the parable, it reveals that God has an outcome he's longing to see when his word is received and believed and obeyed, that people grow and that people mature. You see, it's a very horticultural parable. People from Gordonton this morning are really getting this. And people in the first century really got this, and we dig and search 
and explore. Verse 8, and some seed fell on good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. There's the purpose. Verse 15, as for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Those two passages reveal the purpose. Things grow and mature when they are fed and nurtured, when conditions are good, and when we exercise effort. God's plan and purpose for us is that we are nurtured and encouraged to grow and be fruitful, Christ-like people. And I love the fact that this parable goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible with these truths, and all the way out to the end of God's Word. Look at Genesis 1. You can't go much further back than this. We're looking for God's purpose. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Be fruitful and increase. Two different things in other series. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. Do you see growth and maturity? It's God's purpose. Be fruitful, increase. And then a little bit further along in Genesis 12, key pivotal passages, new series on what God is doing with us. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you see the purpose and the call to growth and maturity? Right from the beginning. See how it aligns with God's purpose and goals from beginning to end. Growth and maturity, a great nation. It's talking about significance, but it's talking about numbers. It's talking about maturity. It's talking about godliness, blessed to be a blessing to all peoples on earth. God is about the same thing today as he was about then, and as he will be right to the end. Recently, I was forced to think very fast and summarize uh, the purpose of church meetings in a phone call. Uh, after the recent census, um, was it the beginning of this year or the end of last year? Anyway, after the census, um, my lucky, lucky household was chosen uh, to, to be part of the ongoing Statistics New Zealand um, surveys. And so every few months, it feels like every week, but it's, I think it's every couple of months, Statistics New Zealand call us and ask myself and Andrea and our, um, our younger son, who's still living at home, questions about our work, our income, and volunteering. And I was answering questions recently about my working week, and when they asked about volunteering hours, I said, yes, I have, I have done some volunteer hours this week. Um, I think I've done four or five, 
with church. We were leading the Alpha gathering uh, on Sunday morning a few months ago. And so I said, I think we've done, I think I've done four or five hours of volunteer work this week for my church. And the woman on the phone said, what exactly is the purpose of the church meetings? So if I'd have said I volunteered for Cancer Society or Red Cross or SBCA, she would have said exactly the same thing. It's part of the survey. What exactly is the purpose of your church meetings? Now, at this point, I was going to have a Q&A and a discussion. I think it might get a little out of hand. But I wonder what you would say in one sentence. It's one thing to have a degree in theology and stuff. It's another thing to sum it up in a single sentence and a handful of words. Well, fortunately, my mind did go to Hebrews 10. Let's have a look at that. But this purpose ties in from the beginning of time to the end of time and smack there in the middle of the parable. Hebrews 10, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So according to this epic passage, Christian gatherings have at least two key purposes. First one, and we'll start at the bottom, is to encourage one another. We are to be mutually encouraging. But don't think of this as just ordinary Kiwi encouragement. If you ask Kiwis to encourage each other, quite often it can be summed up in, good on you, mate. Or a slap on the back. And I don't mean to be too rude and harsh. I'm a Kiwi. I can say what I like, I suppose. But, you know, when we're not great encouragers. I, I guess I'm supposed to, I'm, I think I'm probably talking about men, am I? A bit more? Yeah, okay. Good on you, mate. Encouragement. What do you think of when you think of being encouraged? Australia has a great habit of shortening everything, don't they? They don't say, good on you, mate. That's way too long. They go, ma-a-eight. If they really want to encourage you, eh, they go, ma-a-a-eight. And you feel better. But this word is so much more. In fact, there are many of you here this morning who, for, English, if for you, English is not your first language. The text probably says something else, and it quite possibly says this. To call near. The biblical term in the Greek of this text and in many other non-English translations, instead of saying to encourage or in, in the place of encourage because that's what it means, it says to call near. Biblical encouragement means lovingly calling people to come a little bit closer to Jesus and to do it together. So we do it when we're together and we do it when we're in here and we do it when we're out there. But as Christians who gather, whether we're in a thousand strong meeting or whether we're in two or three gathering together in his name, God's purpose 
is that we are calling each other a little bit closer to Jesus. And we're coming a little bit closer together, growing and maturing. So whether we're singing and pouring our hearts into these fantastic songs with these, this beautiful music, we're coming a little bit closer to Jesus. We're being invited in. There's a lot of other things going on too, of course, but this is part of the purpose. We're expressing, we're overflowing, we're giving, we're, we're confessing, we're in step with the Holy Spirit, but we're coming a little bit closer. When we pray, when we listen, when we teach, when we come together, we're being called nearer. And the second thing in the parable, in the text in Hebrews that it says is the purpose of the church, and I say this till last, but it's one of the first things mentioned up there, is to spur one another on to love and good deeds. The NIV says to spur. The ESV says to stir up. The King James says, and this is actually, I think, the best, my favorite, to provoke. The word appears only one other place in the New Testament. Acts 15, verses 37 to 39. You'll see it in there in the story of how the apostles Paul and Barnabas argued over whether to take John Mark with them on a missionary journey. It's the only other place that it's used, this very word, provoke. And it's translated elsewhere in the ESV and the NIV as a sh in that text, in, in Acts, sorry, in Acts 15, as a sharp disagreement. And it's translated in the King James as sharp contention. And uh, the message, I like this, Tempers flared and they ended up going their separate ways. You get the idea. Tempers flared. But the word provoke is not negative. Any parents in the room, we know what it is. Don't provoke your brother. Don't provoke. You provoke. He provoked me. Generally, provo provocation in our common use is quite negative. But it's not. It's a, it's a nebulous, it's a neutral word. And biblically, we are called to provoke each other to love and good deeds. So our meetings, this is very orderly, Don. This is very calm. It's good. Keep it this way. This is sweet. <laughs> but I'm sure the connect groups get a little bit more. But that's what we're called to. We're told to habitually gather together, make it your routine, to call each other a little bit closer to Jesus and to provoke each other to good deeds with the end of the age in mind. Don't miss that. You see the last line? Or maybe pop back. The last line, and all the more. In fact, increasingly. We're not just to provoke and encourage each other today. We're to do it a bit more next week and a bit more the week after. Increasingly, as the day, capital D, approaches. That's the end. That's the last day. So what did I say to the lady on the phone from Statistics New Zealand? She'd long since hung up by this point, I'm sure. No, she stuck with me. I didn't, I didn't. See, I was thinking these thoughts a little bit quicker. I said something not quite as articulate as this. To encourage each other. Why do we get together? We get together to encourage each other in worship, teaching, and friendship, and to send each other out to do good. We get together for worship, teaching, friendship, and to go out and do good. She typed it in, and there it is. I know there's a lot more to it, but 
That's part of God's purpose when we come together and his word is spread around in song and in word and in friendly conversation and over coffee and in the car park and everywhere. Number three, the parable reveals our struggle. Verses 12 to 14 describe the very real struggle that goes on for those who hear God's word. Disconcerting, isn't it? But it's wonderful. It's going to be okay. In the parable, the life-giving seed on the path is stolen by the devil, which means that there's a struggle on for truth in this age. In the parable, the life-giving seed on the rock doesn't even develop roots down into God, which means there, are, there is a time of testing, and there are times of testing, and where we must choose to follow Jesus' way or the world way, and some people will give up. There's a struggle on. And the life-giving seed in the parable amongst the thorns in verse 14 is choked which means Christian maturity is challenged by worries and riches and pleasures. There's a struggle on. Let's switch our attention from our, our own struggle for a minute. I want to share with you a struggle of our brothers and sisters in another country. The Chinese government recently introduced a whole lot of new laws this year. On the 1st of February, they came into reality in an effort to stifle and strangle the life of your brothers and sisters the body of Christ, the church in China. And they've started enforcing them more and more in some places. The church in China, as you're probably well aware, has boomed. It's a, it's a huge body, but of course it's challenged. Most of it is underground. Uh, the above-ground church is monitored and controlled. And here are four topics that, as of the 1st of February this year, we are not allowed to preach or teach or broadcast in China. So switching focus slightly. Imagine this. I mean, imagine. Imagine this. Put yourself in, in the shoes. The second coming of Jesus. No teaching on that. It'll make people excitable. It'll give them something to look forward to. It will, it will inspire way too much hope in something else. No teaching about the second coming of Jesus. Not allowed to teach about justification by faith. You should work for your nation and for your party. You're justified, yes, by, according to the Chinese government, well, what you do, and it should be for your nation. No justification by faith. No salvation in Christ alone. Must not highlight Jesus' uniqueness. This will take people's attention off the party and off the nation. And lastly, as you can see, we're not allowed to teach evangelism and missions in the church in China today. There are enough Christians already. Cool, good sign. It's also forbidden to teach people under 18 years of age about religion. And even though the underground church has been doing what it wants to do for decades and is affected by these kind of laws because of the strength of the enforcement by government agencies, this does affect everybody. It, it signals a step up in persecution. And so government officials will search the above-ground church, the official church, it's called the Three Self Church, for children's books, children's material, and furniture for little people. 
And if your church has those, you're obviously hosting under-18s. And so you would be sanctioned or punished. The government are also placing surveillance cameras in the above-ground church, at the entrance, at the pulpit, and in the offices. Efforts to stifle and struggle the purposes of God to mature and grow his body. But don't be discouraged. Number four, the parable reveals God's strategy. Notice that the sower doesn't judge the ground. They sow the seed everywhere. It it seems a little pointless to me. And when I've read this for years and looked at it earlier without digging down, it seemed very inefficient to sow on the hard ground, to sow amongst weeds, to sow on the path and so on. But this is broadcasting. This is broadcasting. You know how much I like that. Casting the message broadly everywhere, even in seemingly hopeless places. The strategy of God is to sow the seed of his word widely, whether reaching out to people in New Zealand or in Asia or in the Arab world. God's strategy for us as a church in our outreach and discipleship is to be involved everywhere, the whole body of Christ everywhere and to everyone. The sower scattered the seed on all the surrounding soil. And even though it seems inefficient, it's because in Jesus' time, the methodology was you sow the seed first and then you plow the soil. That's counterintuitive to us, isn't it? I think in New Zealand, I mean, we don't do that. I don't know if anyone does it in a modern world, but it's, it's legit and that's what they did. First they sowed the seed Then they turned over the soil. I think the point is this. You never know when someone's heart is going to be turned over. It's still a godly, legitimate strategy. Tell everyone. You never know. I never know. Even though I think I know stuff about other people. You never know when someone's heart is going to be ruffled, shaken, opened up. When their lives will be upset in a way, or just changed in a way, that gives the seed of God's word somewhere to settle and germinate and grow. I want to tell you about uh, an Arab woman from this country, this is not actually her, but this is my coworker. This is your coworker in that country there. And I told you at the end of last year uh, about outreach and discipleship broadcasting to that country. And I want to tell you a little bit about a report that I got back since I told you about that in December, since we last talked then about the Middle East. That is one of the poorest countries on earth. It's war-ravaged, it's cholera-ravaged, it's a terrible, terrible place. And our partners have been broadcasting Christian programming there for a number of years. 
and people are listening. We broadcast in by shortwave, which is old-fashioned radio, and people listen because it still works, and they're, they're still listening, and you don't need a mobile device to hear it. But we also broadcast on various mobile digital apps. And so when the power's on and people can recharge their batteries, they can listen to loving Christian outreach and let the seed of God's word be sown in their lives through that mechanism too. We get about 100, roughly 100 phone calls or message contacts back a day. About half of them are abusive and threatening from Muslim people who don't want us doing this. And the other half are inquiries and interested people. You could say then that people who hate Christians and threaten broadcasts like that are the hard ground, maybe. Well, about the time that uh, we were celebrating Christmas, this little event was going on. One of our broadcasters, it may have been this woman, please don't snap that picture, um, I'm not, it's not to be published anywhere, but one of our broadcasters, um, sorry, it was a guy, not this woman, she's part of the team, she's covered up in this photo because of the photo. I mean, she covers up in the street, but in the studio and so on, of course, she doesn't need to, but she's covered up for the photo. Her eyes are saying hello and thank you. But we don't, we, we don't want to know who she is. A few months ago, when one of the programs, one of the live programs finished, a woman, a completely different woman, of course, a Muslim listener, would send very long messages in attacking our programmers, our broadcasters. She was very well studied. She was a teacher at a university. She was very, very familiar with world religions. And she would send a lot of long criticism about what we'd said and she became harder and harder in her attacks. Munakasha in Arabic, Munakasha in her debate, in her affront. And she contacted us several times through various different accounts, but then all of a sudden her contacts stopped, her messages stopped, and our, our broadcast producer said, actually, we were really relieved. But then after a few months, she made contact again. She said, can I Skype you? And our broadcast partners were like, well, we'll get back to that one. But they did. They eventually got back. They got in touch on Skype. They let her call through. And the programmer said, why, why did you get back in touch? She said, three months ago, she discovered that she had inoperable cancer. She was very sad and very, very shocked. But she said, I decided to come back to my mission in life to fight you guys. That was her purpose. The programmer said, I'm very sorry to hear about your cancer. I will let all the local believers know and pray for you. So I will broadcast the situation and I will call the body of Christ in this country to pray for you. She said, don't do that. He said, yes, I will. And I'm not, I won't tell them your name, but we're going to do it whether you like it or not. So via the radio and, and the media apps and outlets, we told believers to pray for this person and for cancer and for it to go. Well, that Sunday, she sent a message to the office at 9.30. Can I call you again? The, bro the producer said, now my day is destroyed. <laughs> he did end up eating his words, of course. She called in, and these were her first words. I think I believe Jesus Christ is my God. She said, do you remember when you said that you would pray? Well, I went to sleep that night and I heard people talking in other languages. 
Then I heard your voice very clearly saying, and we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. The first day, I felt that it was just a strange dream, but the pain was less. Then I had the same dream the second night, and I could hear the voices. I even woke my husband to ask if he could hear them, and the pain was a little bit less the next day. I had the same dream on the third night. And when I touched the place on my back where, there was, where the cancer was, there was no pain. I woke and told my husband, and he said, Yamara intimajnuni, which means, oh woman, you're crazy. <laughs> they went off to a private hospital, had a test. The cancer had completely gone. Completely gone. She said she feels totally different. And the programmer and the woman prayed together on the phone, on Skype, for her husband. Our partners asked why she'd contacted us in the first place. She said, when I heard about your radio channel from my friends, you evil people trying to encourage Muslims to become Christians, I searched for you. Yes. I searched for you on the channel. And when I listened to you, I have never felt such peace. But I was very worried because a Muslim preacher had once told me that the devil can make bad things look nice. So I decided to fight you instead. But now I know I was fighting myself. Seed sowing everywhere because we never know when people's hearts will be turned over and plowed up. So the technique, the strategy, be yourself. There are lots of books out there about evangelism and missions. There's lots of great methods. Some of them are very, very, very helpful. My one-sentence approach, be yourself. Be your most loving, faithful, courageous self. Tell people everywhere what God has done for you. What is your personal experience? What wonderful, liberating truths are you enjoying today? Offer to pray. Be a blessing. Verse 8 of Luke 8. The seed on good soil came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. There will be a huge harvest. There is a huge harvest harvest. And this harvest is and will overshadow all the struggles of the age. It is worth it. It is worth it. It's worth following Jesus. It's worth pursuing God's goal. It's worth enjoying the purposes of God. It's worth the effort. It's worth the struggle. God is unstoppable in his purpose, in his goals, in his outcome. And I want to recommend as we finish up that among other things this week, whatever you do with this, I encourage you to go to that go board at the back there behind uh, by the exit door over there on my right and familiarize yourself with our gateway missionaries and mission partners as people we had back here a few months ago. 
and to pray for them that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit, overflow with love, and here are a few points. That they would have the vision of God for their goal people. That they wouldn't lose sight of God's goal for the people they're working among. We've got people on that wall working in Jordan, yay, in Cambodia, in Southeast Asia, Central Asia, amongst drug addicts and so on in the West. Pray that they don't lose sight of the goal that God put in their heart and that he's sprinkled all the way from the beginning of the end to the end of his word. Pray that they would be encouraged and stirred by fellow Christians, truly encouraged. We can do that from here. Pray that they would stand strong in the struggle. There is a struggle on. And that their good deeds, that their good work, that their ministry, that the work of their hands, that the words of their mouths, that the example of their lives would be satisfying. And by the way, let's pray the same for ourselves. Let's have the musicians back up here to continue to call us in each other near a little closer to Jesus. I want us to finish off by reading a declaration together. Just staying where you are and staying in your seat, I'd like to finish off with reading these words together from Psalm 67. There's just two verses, and they sum up this, and I think it's a lovely way for us to end and speak out. I'm giving you a moment to see them so that you can read them with thought and, 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 and agreement. Psalm 67 is a beautiful psalm that sums up lots of these ideas. Verses 3 to 4. Let's, let's re- speak these out together as a, as a declaration of our desire to be part of God's goal, to be part of God's plan, to enjoy Jesus amongst all peoples from Hamilton to the ends of the earth. Should we do that? Let's read. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. Amen, amen. Let it be so. See you out there. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.